So the sermon title today is A Perfect Sermon. Humble of me, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, I'm not referring to my sermon. I'm referring to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Today we cover Peter's great sermon at Pentecost. I, I wanted you to see the full scope of it, so I read the whole thing for you. And I'm convinced, as my wife mentioned last night, the sermon is so good I could probably just read it and sit down and that would be enough. Just reading through it again today and, and, and during that time I was just struck by the glory of Christ revealed in this passage. God is good, isn't he? Today we cover this great sermon on Pentecost. It is a sermon that gives us a good example of what preaching should look like. The content of the sermon is also filled with amazing biblical truths. It is presented with clarity and courage, as we see. Just a couple of general observations from the sermon before we start exploring the content. A couple of things came to mind. It's, it's very logical. We will see Peter uses clear structure. Peter sought to logically explain the solution both to the confusion of the crowd and the mocking unbelievers that we'll look at again briefly in a second in verse 13. It's authoritative. We see Peter spoke with the, with the authority of God, but also it appeals to previous authority in the texts of the Old Testament, constantly bringing those in. It's applicational. We see he directly confronts the men of Israel with the murder of Jesus. And I would argue this is an example for all pastors. There is this common theme going around right now that we should just let the, uh, in, in our circles, just let the Holy Spirit do all the, con uh, the confronting. And, and let the application come only from the Holy Spirit. But I think the example here from Peter gives us at least an idea that he goes right after him, doesn't he? He says, you nailed him to a cross by godless men. That's pretty direct, isn't it? And he says, you crucified him. That's pretty direct. It's applicational. It's also very understandable. Peter used clear wording. Now, I admit to you there are some difficult things in it. And some of it that he does not explain. <laughs> he just gives a lot in Joel, didn't he? He gave a lot of scripture in Joel, and he didn't do an exposition of Joel, did he? He just kind of left it there. And I, I believe some of it is because of the audience that he's speaking to. In other words, he understands exactly his audience, which is another point that I'll bring out in a little while. He knows what they know. He knows what they're thinking. He knows their understanding of Joel. He understands that they understand the Old Testament. So when he speaks and says things, they go, oh, yeah, I get that. I think in some ways it's a little bit harder for us because, let's be honest, we've probably read a lot more of the New Testament in our reading than the Old Testament, right? He's also very courageous, as mentioned. The fear of man was definitely not a factor in Peter's life as he confronts sin without fear. This is a change, isn't it, from the Peter that ran? He goes right after him. 
Peter knew his audience, and he spoke in a way that his message was clear and understandable, but he was courageous also. He went from denying Christ to exalting Christ, and that's what he does in this passage. And then finally, it was uh, it is a spirit-inspired sermon. This is different from other sermons in our day. <laughs> Mark Ronaldo and I attempt to study and understand the passages. We seek to only tell you what God's Word says. That is our goal, right, Mark? We just want to tell you what God says. We don't try to come up with our own ideas or thoughts, and we sure don't wing it. <laughs> In, in, in fact, Jesus had told them, don't worry about studying. I'm going to give you the words. That doesn't apply directly to us. Do you understand? Sermons aren't inspired by God most of the time, except in this case, it was inspired by God. No one is perfectly inspired, but Peter was. He was literally speaking the exact words of God. That's an amazing concept, isn't it? He had pure motives. He was 100% submitted to the Spirit of God. And the Spirit was literally speaking through Peter. <laughs> Man, Anthony, don't you wish you could preach sermons like this? <laughs> Every word of my mouth is only what the Spirit wants said. Wouldn't that be great? That's what we have here. That's why it's a perfect sermon. <laughs> because only God is perfect. <laughs> And God speaks through men, and he did here. Now, despite my fallibility, I want to do everything I can to tell you exactly what Peter said and what he meant. I want to be clear and understandable and courageous and applicational and authoritative and logical like him. And this will happen as I submit to the Lord in my study and in this pulpit. So I pray, and I, I would ask all of you, will you pray for all of us? <laughs> Pray for your elders. We need the Spirit to work in us. We want to be accurate. We don't want to miss even an inch, even one word. We want to do it perfect. We know that only comes by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't boldly stand up here like the common theme is nowadays in Christian circles and say, Thus says the Lord, says Mike. I got a word from the Lord. I think we need to be careful with that phrase. Do you understand? I'm not an apostle. I'm not perfectly inspired. I'm a fallible, sinful man that needs the Spirit of God to work in me. So will you please pray for us? Pray for the people that are speaking. This is a scary thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not really as afraid of you as I am my Lord. I'm going to stand before Him one day and I want to make sure that I get these passages right. I want to make sure that He can, He says to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And I know that's only going to happen by the Spirit working in my soul. So will you pray for us? I want to encourage all of you as we share the truth, and as you share the truth with your family, your co-workers, and people that the Lord brings into your life, be clear, <laughs> be courageous, be confrontational, but speak with gentleness. Speak with authority, but knowing that your authority is ultimately in Scripture. 
what God says. Be accurate. Be humble. Be dependent upon the Lord as you speak. Know that only by God's sovereign grace can someone speak truth. Amen? Know that only by grace can someone be saved by that same truth, correct? So depend upon the Lord. Let's look at this amazing sermon, okay? First, notice the sermon's setting. It's found in verses 12 to 14. It says, And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are all full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. Here we see the people are responding to the miraculous events of the Spirit's arrival in the new covenant power that he has shown. The apostles were speaking with different languages, remember? And the people were hearing the Galileans speak in their own home language. This was was a miracle of speaking, not a miracle of hearing. Very important for you to note, thinking back. It was not that the people were getting given some special ears to hear in their language. It was that they literally spoke a known language from a different part of the world. That's miraculous for these Galileans who were untrained and uneducated men. They were speaking other languages. There was a mixed reaction to this miracle. Some were perplexed. Others came up with illogical explanations. They said the men were drunk. But Peter stood up and spoke. Peter spoke with the authority of all the other eleven. Also, notice they stood with him. It's as if these twelve men stand up and say, We are God's spokesmen. And this is God's message. So listen. Peter raised his voice saying, in effect, you must listen to me. It is very important. Next, notice Peter's opening words in the sermon's introduction. In the second half of 14, it says, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Peter identifies his audience. Peter calls them to learn and understand something now. Peter exhorts them to listen and respond appropriately to the message. This is very direct. I have something to know and you need to know it, is what he says. And again, Peter speaks with authority. I think it's very interesting here that it's addressed initially, especially to the men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem. Remember, there were people that had gathered from all over. And so his attention seems to be focused more in on those guys that lived right in the area. It's very interesting. I think maybe, and you'll see this as he say, says, you killed the Messiah? Those that had visited from, for Pentecost were not necessarily the part of that. Yet, they were still Jewish and their Messiah had come and had died. So there was a need for submission and trusting in the Messiah. It's very direct application, as I said. 
Next, notice Peter's opening words, or in his opening words, there is a structure to his sermon. There is a structure. In verses 15 to 24, or 21, uh, Peter sticks to the old uh, Baptist way of preaching, three, three points and a leg split. He gives three points. There's the first point in verses 15 to 21. That was a joke. Y'all could have laughed. It's okay. I was taught that in, uh, I was taught that in Bible college going through it. Southeastern Baptist College, you always needed three points and a leg split at the end. Not a, literally a leg split, but it's that uh, bring home illustration that causes everybody to go, oh, that's wild or that's great. Peter gives us three points and a leg split, and his leg split wasn't him. The people go, what do we do? <laughs> That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Hey, if it's really going to work, it's going to be God. Notice the sermon's first point is in verses 15 to 21. The sermon's second point is 22 to 28. And then the third point is 29 to 36. Now, what I want to do is just kind of walk down through this sermon and these three points and look at them, and, and we probably won't get through all of them today, but I want to kind of deal with this sermon and, and spend some time looking at it. So let's look at, sermon, at Peter's first point, the sermon's first point, verses 15 to 21. Peter gave both the negative and the positive explanation of the miraculous events. He doesn't spend a lot of time on the 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 negative aspects of it. In other words, he doesn't spend a whole bunch of time saying, you're wrong here, you're wrong here, let me explain why you're wrong. He, he just makes really one phrase. In verse 15, we see it, he gives what these perplexing events are not. And he starts and says, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. In simple, what he says is, look, the guys aren't drunk, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Get over this. This is foolishness. These guys aren't drunk. This is a miracle. He doesn't develop it a lot. He just says one little phrase and moves on. I think this is a, a good uh, a call for all of us, even in our own application. We don't have to give 15 reasons why you are thinking wrong. <laughs> You're thinking wrong. <laughs> the right answer is God's Word. Do you understand? It's very interesting, isn't it? I find myself as a parent sometimes doing this, right? Belaboring the points and uh, having to give 15 reasons why you should turn from that sin instead of just saying, God's Word says this. We need to do this. I love His directness. It's great, isn't it? Listen to the Word of God is what He says. That's foolishness. Then He goes right on and says what these perplex perplexing events are. He starts in verse 16 and says, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now, Peter states that Pentecost was the prophetic fulfillment of a passage in Joel. In other words, this passage in Joel chapter 2, this is what you see. This is that. Now, some hyper-dispensationalists would say something like this. He really wasn't saying that this is really happening. He's saying that this might happen, or it's going to happen sometime in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, 
This is why I'm a leaky dispensationalist at best. Right here, he is not saying that this may happen in the future. He says, this is that. So guess what? This is that. It happened. Now, we'll see. I'm not going to fall over to the other side and be full-fledged covenantal on it either. We're going to see that this passage, as, we, as it unfolds, has both aspects. That is, God has a plan for Israel, and God has begun to do a good work and a new work with the Gentiles. There's the grafting in of the Gentiles, and then a final plan for Israel at the end. You'll see all this as we go through it. Both, okay? Don't fall off the deep end on either side. The phrase here, he says, he starts with the introduction and he says, and it shall be in the last days. This is part of this special time or this new age. He says, and it shall be in the last days. If you look over at Joel chapter two, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to flip back and forth. You might want to put your hand there, Joel chapter two, because we're gonna kind of go a couple times. You're gonna, good sound effects there. Sorry about that. Uh, go back and forth to get the idea of what the passage is talking about. The phrase, in the last days, is not used initially by the prophet Joel. He didn't say, in the last days, when he gave those words. Matter of fact, he said, it shall come about after this. That's a totally different little phrase, isn't it? Well, however, it's important, however... Joel was pointing to this same time because Peter said it was the last days and he says that this is that. Peter brings to light that the same time was now. Joel saw into the future after this. Peter sees it as a period of time called the last days and he says this is that. So what's that mean? Well, here's what it means. The last days is not meant to be understood as a few last days way off in the future for Peter. A short period of time before the Lord returns. That's not what, that's what, by the way, that's what a classic dispensationalist would say. That this is talking about right before the Lord returns. I think he's saying that this time right now is the last days. We are in the last days. And at the end, Jesus will return in those last days. So instead of saying, after this, Peter says, the last days. This is the new age, or the time period we now live in. It is the last days. It started at Pentecost and runs until the great and glorious day of our Lord. That's the last days. Now, obviously, at the beginning of the last days, there were some special revelations from God in order to announce the change in age. That's why we saw the tongues and the noise and the speaking in tongues. A lot of that was to announce we are in this new age, this new time, the period of the new covenant. So when he says this is that, this is the last day spoken of in Joel. He's saying, that's what this is. Now, obviously, at the beginning of the last days, though, there are some differences. 
And we will see at the end of the last days, there are some differences. We'll see this in Joel in a little bit. That is what was happening in Jerusalem on Pentecost. The conclusion of the age, we will see, has some special revelations also. Peter gives a passage from Joel that gives a broad picture explaining the entire time of the church. That's what that whole passage is. He's saying the whole church age. That's what it looks like. Okay? And he calls it the last days. Notice next. Second. The authority and source of the events of this time. Interjects. God says. Again, pointing to what? That this is God's predetermined plan. That God has established this time period. And God is the ultimate authority and the ultimate source of his sermon. Which is very important. Notice that next, he says, the pouring out of God's Spirit on all of mankind during this time. It says, that I will pour forth my, of my Spirit on all mankind. I'm convinced that the Spirit is trying to direct the attention of the audience past or outside the nation of Israel in this quote from Joel. Joel was alluding to it now Peter is pointing to it again at this point. The various languages was the first, but even the scripture here points to the idea of that the gospel is for everyone. It goes out. It's supposed to go out. And at this point he says that all, I will pour forth my, of my spirit on all mankind, which implies what? There's a new age, a new time. Now, why is this important? If you think just for a second, remember he addressed it to Judea and those who live in Jerusalem or all who are in Jerusalem. It very well could be he, they would have the religious people in Jerusalem would look at those that came from outside Pentecost that came in during that time and look, kind of look down on them. Because there was a common uh, a thought that if you were Hellenized, that is, you bought into the culture and the language and the people of your of those other countries, that you were kind of compromising. And in a sense here, he's saying what? No, this is going to go to all nations. You need to get your eyes off of just yourself. It's not just going to be Jew, uh, the, um, Israel. It's not just going to be here in Jerusalem. This gospel is for everybody, and the Spirit's going to come on everyone who believes in this message. And again, he's developing this throughout the sermon, or throughout um, uh, the quote of Joel. Notice how the New Age is confirmed by the Jewish people. Notice it says, And the initial results of the Spirit's arrival in this time are, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Now, Pastor Mike just said that he believes that this is the start of the new age, correct? Did he just say that? Yes. He also said that this whole last days describes the whole period, right? Then that means Pastor Mike is now a continuationist. Right? Why? Well, because the natural response for you would say, wait a second, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Anybody had any dreams lately? 
Anybody had any visions lately? If we're continuationists, we are getting those still. Some people still claim to get those. So what's he talking about here? Well, I don't think that, first of all, Peter doesn't do an explanation, does he? He's just generally telling these things that are happening. Second, I believe he's talking specifically to those people at that time. He's saying initially these things are going to be the signs. Remember, he pointed back to what was happening. And we will see throughout the book of Acts, what do we see? Men dreaming dreams, right? Seeing visions. Did that ha Does that happen in Acts? Yes, it does. And you even have ladies prophesying, don't you? Remember the daughters? We'll see them in a little while. So I think at the beginning of this time period, and you're all saying, yeah, how do you come to that conclusion? Well, I'll tell you in a second. Just hang in there. You'll see it. For the same reason that the events at the initial start are not all the way through, the events at the end don't happen all the way through, too. Now, let me explain what I mean. We'll get to it in a second. But, no matter how you develop this and see this, when he quotes Joel, he's saying the new age has started and these signs are pointing to the new age beginning. Okay, that's basically what he's saying. That's the gist. Okay? Is he talking about whether he's a continuationist or a cessationist here? No. It's not even part of the issue. Okay? Now, notice fifth. The extent, however, of the Spirit's work in this time. You see it when he says in verse 18. Just, just a side note. Just a side note real quick. I've got to take a, a break before we do this. I haven't defi de defined those terms. I sometimes do it. See, I just blew it. Some of y'all are visitors and you're like, continuationist, cessationist, what's that? Okay, continuationist, just let me develop it real quick, tell you real quick. Some of y'all are like, I already know this, keep moving on. Uh, a continuationist is somebody that see, believes that the sign gifts are still around today. They continue on through the whole period of time during the church age, okay? It would be like speaking in tongues is still around all that period of time, Okay? A cessationist says that the sign gifts have ceased. They finished. They were at the beginning. That is a very, very brief definition. Okay? There's a lot more to it, but that's a brief definition. Alright, so, Peter's not talking about either one of them. He's just telling about the age and the start, and he's describing Pentecost, correct? Okay, here we go. The extent of the Spirit's work, though, during this age. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my speech, and they shall prophesy. This is the pouring out of the Spirit. That is the indwelling of the Spirit. And it points to the fact that God is impartial. He does not save based on one's sex, whether male or female, status or Skin color. That is again what he's emphasizing here. He has poured out his spirit on both men and women, slave and free man, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. This is exactly what Galatians is talking about. Every tribe and tongue and people group have the spirit of God. Isn't that glorious news? This is characteristic of the new age. Just a side note. 
God is not obligated to do this, by the way. This is so important. Oh, please get this. Listen, when he says, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour forth in those days, pour forth my spirit. Listen, I think often we think, and we've heard this a lot, you know, women's rights and stuff like this, men's rights, it'll come back around eventually. We hear all these things, right? Listen, God does not give the Spirit to you because you deserve the Spirit. Oh, that's shocking, isn't it? No people group, none. No tribe, tongue, or nation, or people, or sex, or skin color deserves to get the Spirit of God. Period. None of us. Why? Because we're sinners. We're sinners. Do you understand that that makes this church? We're all the same. If God decides to give His Spirit to any one person, skin color or sex or whatever, guess what? Great. He's a gracious God, isn't He? What a glorious God. This should have caused us to rejoice, right? Praise God. He's, he is all about being impartial. He loves to give His Spirit to everybody. All kinds of different people. God in His grace began at that time to start to show a special favor on all people. And, and you know why I, I say this and I want to warn you? Because for if you read your Old Testament, was God a little bit partial in the Old Testament? To a degree, He did. He was mainly focused on the Jews. But just to make it very clear, as He was showing favor to the Jews, they were, what? Spitting in His face, for lack of a better term. God had offered and offered and offered and told them, rent your hearts, turn, repent, change your hearts, and they would do none of it. They hated Him. So now God turns and says, my grace is for all people groups. Notice six, the concluding characteristics of this time. Now this is very important. I believe these events are at the conclusion time. Even though he quotes all of Joel, the beginning is the introduction, the end is more of the concluding period. Notice, Joel gave additional miracles and events during this time. He says, I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and blood, uh, vapor of smoke. Now, some of you might say, wait a second, Mike, you said last week the tongues as of fire were tongues that look like fire. So isn't that what's happening there? And didn't it come from heaven? So therefore you got granting sky from sky and then earth below? Isn't that still referring to it? Well, I would offer to you that that's not what he's talking about in Joel here. And the reason why is because of that. The sun will be turned into darkness. And you say, wait a second, Mike. Didn't it get dark at the cross? Didn't it get dark at the cross? Well, yeah. But that was 50 days previous. And that wouldn't be this is that, would it? That would be this is that. 
<laughs> back there. Do you understand? But, just for the sake of argument, what about that? And the moon into blood. Okay, now that's where it starts to get a little confusing for me. If you were going to go with it's all been fulfilled, that's called a partial, another big word that I'm not going to be able to define, but a partial preterist view would mean that everything has been accomplished in the Bible, partially, okay? It leads to what some people say, um, uh, post-millennial view. A lot of post-millennials go with this view. That is that um, we're after the millennium. It, 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 we're, we're ushering in the final coming of Christ, but it'll be the new age. There won't be a millennium here. It's already gone. But that's not where we're at either. Ultimately, we see here that this is referring most likely to the end of that age. He put bookends, in other words. Do you understand? At the beginning, and if you read Revelation, you see this. At the beginning, at Pentecost, you have speaking in tongues and you have some miraculous events. At the end of the age, and notice it says in a second, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. At the end, you'll have these kind of miracles. These miracles of what? Sky, grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. So ultimately, he quotes Joel to describe the whole time. Do you understand? The beginning part being Pentecost. The end part being Revelation chapter 6 to 19. Tribulation before the return of Christ. Do you understand? Do you all get that? No, you're probably going to have to listen to the tape a little bit. And again, I'm not, this is what I believe. You can, if you don't agree, go study your Bibles. This is what I think it is saying. Okay? And the reason why I come to this conclusion is because of the next one. The conclusion of this time. He says, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Now let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Has the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come? Well, he says, before it. So the great and glorious day of the Lord has not come, has it? It's before it, right? Okay. I think this is pointing to the end of the age. It seems very clear to me, but maybe it's because of my presuppositional glasses. But I tried, I tried to read, I even tried to read, I read Hendrickson, he's an Amil guy, and I tried to figure it out. No millennium. That's what Amil means. It's simple. Okay? Tried to read it, read his commentary, and he just didn't even deal with it. That is, maybe it's this time. And he didn't deal with it. I love you. I love your commentary, but this is wrong. Okay. The point behind this is, is that this time appears to be pointing to the end of that age. So he just quotes Joel to describe the whole thing. This is that. It began the age, is what he's saying. The age has started. And then the required response. Notice. Now, I am completely convinced, and again, I might find out why I'm wrong when I get to heaven. I'm completely convinced that the reason why he described the whole age is because of this next section. The required response that's mentioned in Joel 2. It says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why did Peter continue in the Joel passage in describing it if those events of the blood moon, why isn't he, why did he include all that? 
Why did he read that whole section? Why did he quote that whole section? I think it's because he wanted to emphasize this. This main thing to the audience. And that is this. For the entire period of the church age, there will be a call to call upon the name of the Lord. Repent and believe in Him. And he wanted to get this point across. Again, Peter did not know when the age would be completed. Does everybody agree with that? I do believe the Spirit knew, but I believe the Spirit didn't want to reveal the exact time. Okay? And so, what I've said over and over and over and over from this pulpit as we've gone through Luke and we've seen all these prophecies, haven't we seen that God wants us to be sitting on the edge of our seat waiting for the imminent return of Christ? Do you understand? And so, when he speaks, he speaks wanting the people to do what? Get ready, he could return at any time. Get ready, he could come at any time. And I think he's doing that here. He quotes a passage that's going to make them do what? The great and glorious day could come at any moment. Be ready. How am I ready? Calling upon the name of the Lord. Repenting and believing. Trusting in Him. That's what it's about. That's what Peter's emphasizing here. He didn't know the age was complete or when the age would be completed. He just wanted to emphasize the imminent return of Christ at the end of this age. And so he concludes with the required response. And I want to, I want to include that in application today. Listen to me closely. You might be sitting there going, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> He's been talking about all this amen or this dispensational word and he's got continuationism going on. Here, let me just, let me just give you one main concept. If you get nothing else from the sermon, get this. You ready? You are a sinner. You are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord. You get that? Trust in Him, not yourself. Commit to Him. Live for Him. He is your hope. And He will save you. He will deliver you. If you get nothing else, get that, okay? Did you get that? He's your hope. All of us that want to dig in a little deeper, turn over to Joel. Some important observations on Peter's use of Joel's prophecy. Back in Joel 2, the passage has three different time references, minimum. Listen, folks. It appears that a period of time around the 800s, Joel is speaking as a prophet to Israel, and he says to them that you're going to get, or at that time they were experiencing a locust infestation. Locusts were tearing up everything. And what that means is you don't eat. You understand? Locusts come in and they eat everything, and you starve to death. Okay? And so Joel says, repent, <laughs> in effect. 
If you repent and turn to God and forsake your false gods and trust in God, you will experience great joy. <laughs> and that's what he does. He says, and you're going to do that. And they did. Most likely at some point during Judah's history, the godly southern tribes, they repented. And in the process of repenting, they did what? God took the locusts away. So there's three promises that are in this passage in Joel chapter 2. One, a near promise. Here's the near promise. The locusts are going away. You're going to rejoice. If you, because you repented, you're going to, it's going to be better for you. Things are going to be better for you. Guess what happened? That's exactly what happened back then. Then there's a far one where he talks about this new age coming in verses 28 to 32 of Joel chapter 2. And guess who quotes that? Peter. Okay? Peter quotes that. All right, everybody got that? So in, in Acts chapter 2.21, we see, And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now look at Joel 2.32. Look at how it closes. This is the third one. It's coming, it's transitioning. Notice it says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. You see how that looks just like Acts 2.21? Okay. Now how many of you, when you're quoting a prophecy, stop right in the middle of a verse? Usually, you want to try to give the whole context, right? Well, not Peter. He stopped right in the middle of Joel 2.32. He said, For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. By the way, in this verse, you see a beautiful picture. What is that? Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, side by side, perfectly. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, and what? At the end, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So you see, in order for you to call upon the name, what has to happen? God has to call you. Do you understand? That is God sovereignly working to make you call out to Him. Both are true, though, aren't they? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, and He has to call you. Peter didn't emphasize that, did he? No, he dropped that part. Maybe he was just emphasizing repent to all those people. That's very interesting to me. Uh, just a couple of side notes here. Just one side note here. You don't have to go to Romans 9 with somebody you're evangelizing. Do you understand? Romans 9 is very hard. It's the part that God chooses whom he wants, and he hardens whom he wants. Let's don't go there in your evangelistic efforts. Okay? If you share the gospel and they get saved, then bring out Romans 9 because they're going to go, I knew it! I knew it! I would have never chose God if He didn't work in my heart. It had to be a miracle. Do you understand? All y'all that aren't believers yet and you're trying to figure out, hey, just go to Romans 9 later. Repent! Call upon the name of the Lord! And if you do, it's because God's working. But ultimately, notice he points the emphasis on Zion here. 
in, in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, he's, he emphasizes the, on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape or are delivered. So the emphasis is more on Israel. More on Israel. Now, why is that important? Well, because for our, my beloved covenantal friends that say that the church has been, has replaced Israel, I think this passage, and especially Joel chapter 3, makes it very clear that God still has a plan for Israel. No matter how you look at it. Okay, I love you, but it's still there. And you say, no, that's not true. Well, look at Joel chapter 3 verse 1. By the way, do you understand that Joel chapter 3 and Joel chapter 2, those little titles 2 and 3, weren't in the original documents? So they just kept going, right? Do you understand that? Uh, this might be shocking to some of you, but those Bible numbers and verse numbers weren't in the original documents. <gasps> okay, so Joel chapter 3 is right after Joel chapter 2, right? Look what, look what happens in Joel chapter 3. For behold, in those days... What days? The days he was just talking about. And at that time, when I restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem... Boy, that sounds pretty Jewish, doesn't it? I will gather all the nations. Oh, so there is a distinction here. Because he's talking about Judah and Jerusalem and nations. Right? And bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Everybody knows where that is, right? That's in Jerusalem. I, I was kidding. Nah, I had to look it up too. <laughs> it's most likely uh, right outside of Jerusalem. And I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance. Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Oh, no. Don't bring up the land promises, because that just blows my whole eschatology out of the... Ah, water. There you go. I got too far ahead of myself. Again, see, this is not a perfect sermon. His was a perfect sermon. What's the emphasis here? God still has a promise for a prom, a, a plan for Israel. He still does. No matter how you look at it. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that He's going to take them and there's going to be judgment during this age. Judgment? Let me ask you a question. I thought all judgment was done when Jesus died on the cross. No. No, no, no. Judgment at the end of the age is going to be huge. And what is that? The tribulation period. Read Revelation 6 to 19. That's what that is. The judgment. I read an article this week. It was so interesting. On, on, uh, them wanting to go up on the Temple Mount. The Jews wanting to go up on the Temple Mount and pray. Did y'all see that article I posted on Facebook? It was very interesting. It was very interesting. Do you realize that they aren't allowed to go up there and pray? But there are some really strict Jews that go up on the Temple Mount and do it anyway. And, and, and when they do, and by the way, they're not praying the true God yet. Do you understand? They, they think they are, but they're not. They go up there and they do this and they're just trying to do it to do a religious act so that God will accept them. Still haven't got it. But they get up there and they, they'll drop something so that they can bow down and pray. 
just to kind of fake it. The, the reality is, is that there is so much hatred in that area. It is going to take an absolute miracle of God to do, to allow them to be a, build a temple, uh, a temple in that area. But I think they're going to do it. I think it's going to happen. And brothers and sisters, I don't know when that day is. It might be a thousand years from now. They hate each other so much. I don't know how they're going to do it. But I'm pretty sure that that means the end's coming close when they do it. Because destruction's going to happen. There's going to be judgment from God at that point. As you read Revelation 6, you see this. Ultimately, though, the third time period is the time of the tribulation and then into the millennium, going into the millennium, when the great and glorious day when the Lord returns. What Peter did was he read just one big section, gave us no exposition. Don't we wish we had that exposition? And then he says, but why he read the whole time is, I think, to make that emphasis on calling upon the name of the Lord. So turn back to Acts chapter 2, and we'll close with this. Next week, we'll look at the second point of his sermon. But I kind of want to give you just a highlight real quick. Why should I call upon the name of the Lord? Why? Why should you call upon the name of the Lord? Why should you repent and trust in Christ? But believer, why should you continue to repent and trust in Christ? Why? Answer. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, put in an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why should we call upon the name of the Lord? Answer, because Jesus has done it. Because Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has rose from the dead. And Jesus is now ruling and reigning. Call upon the name of the Lord. He is your hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. Lord, there's so many things in our lives that we need to understand that it's not just getting head knowledge about who you are, but more about applying who you are to our daily lives, how we treat our spouses and how we treat our children and how we work and how we serve the body. All is a reflection on whether or not we're calling upon you. So God, please help this message not to just be head knowledge. But God, we beg you, please help us to understand fully the depth of your plan in Christ. That you have saved us through Christ's death and resurrection. God, please help that gospel message change us so that we will honor you with our lives. Help us to be lights to the world and proclaim this gospel to everyone. 
We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.